Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Kyle Reese-Mendel, the author of Neighborhood of Fear, The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. This is his first book. He's a cultural historian and a professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Reese Mendel. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the book. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Suburbia, the safe, quiet place you can raise a family. There's a better than average school for your kids. There's not too much traffic. Teenagers have safe places to do activities. Burglars know they're not welcome. Houses are affordable. You can join a book club and go to an Applebee's without waiting for a table. You're going to be happy in suburbia, right? Tell us about the op-ed your book opens with, written by Linda Saslow in 1982. So the book opens with um, this letter, or actually it's an article by Linda Saslow, who's a homeowner, so just a, a regular person, um, in the in New York Times speaking personally series. So this was just a series of articles about regular people, right, speaking for themselves about things in their lives. So it wasn't, um, so it, it ranged across experiences, people, demographics. And she writes in to talk about the experience of having her home burglarized. And not just that her home was invaded, but that what it meant to her, how it was a different experience than the one she had grown up with in suburbia, how she had expected when she moved in the 1970s. So the, so the, uh, the article is from 1982, just to make clear. So when she moves to suburbia in the 1970s, she's expecting to find, right, clean water, safe streets, safe homes, right, good schools, all the things you just laid out. And what she actually finds is that the way of life she expected is not there. And she feels melancholy. She feels fear. She feels distrust and skepticism. And so I open the book with this anecdote or with this article because it signals this shift from the leave it to beaver kind of expectation to this other suburb, right, the neighborhood of fear. And so the crisis that I'm talking about in the title is that, this crisis of expectation, a crisis of privilege. Um, and we could talk more about sort of what that leads to. She said, many parents who chose a suburban lifestyle for their children have been painfully disillusioned. We followed a promise of security and our plans were thwarted. Um, what happened? So this idea, and, and the reason it opens the book is because it symbolizes not just this particular violation of the home invasion, but the sort of failure of suburbia to live up to these expectations. So the book covers three areas of threat, um, moral, criminal, and environmental. Uh, and the essential argument says, you know, starting in the 1970s, I use 1975 in the title, but really in the early 1970s, we start to see suburbs as home to danger local dangers from within. So not just the fear of the government, right, of the tax man coming um, or the fear of racial integration, but the fear of these local hazards that are endangering the family in ways that people never imagined would happen, that they expected not to have to worry about, as I put it in the book. And so her article really, to me, you know, as a historian, when you find these things where someone articulates the thing you think is happening and they say it so um, straightforwardly, so baldly, and they bring, you know, uh, they signal this moment to you. It's, it's, it's a great find, but I think it's also really useful as this signpost of here's where we are by the early 1980s. Here how, here's how things have changed in a very short amount of time. Let's do some history here. Um, do we know where and when the first suburb 
was created? In other words, is it possible to pinpoint this the first time uh, or the first people to say, ah, forget this city. I can't take city X. We have to set up a neighborhood a few miles away to make life nice and easy. Um, and then I guess the second part of the question is what were they running from? So I gave you too many questions <laughs> at once there, but where and when was this first suburb created? So as I, as I know in the introduction, because you try to, uh, you know, situate your work and talk about the things that you're, you're connecting to in the broader history, both past and sort of current. Um, so there really is no first suburb in that sense, right? That it's kind of, it's as much an idea as it is a place. So we sort of point to the late 19th century after the Civil War, and to some degree during the Civil War, as a moment where wealthy Americans begin to leave cities, at least partially, usually during the summer, usually vacation communities, um, usually as sort a of respite, right? So explicitly a respite from the danger of the city. Again, the kinds of things we were talking about. So clean air and water, right? This kind of 19th century notion of the bucolic nature, uh, uh, bucolic qualities of nature to cure you of your urban ills. You're away from poor people, you're away from immigrants, you're away from people of color. And so these communities start in the, in the mid to late 19th century um, and evolve into a lot of different manifestations of the suburb. So there's lots of historians have done work on the sort of working man suburb, the railroad suburb, the self-built suburb, sort of all these different kinds of manifestations. So I think ultimately what I'm talking about is both that legacy, right, the sort of anti-urban and to some degree sort of expectation of safety and security as an ongoing legacy of the suburb from the 19th century, but the particular crisis that I'm talking about is about the post-war suburb and right, and the reaction to or the expectation of um, this placid, bucolic, family-friendly, nuclear family, uh, Cold War suburb. Is there a place um, that really sort of exemplifies where um, or exemplified the type of suburb that you're talking about? Is there a geographic location that people point to and say, during this time, the 1970s, this area was the classic suburb. Yeah, so Levittown, um, the three Levittowns that are built in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Long Island are pointed to as sort of the, the symbolic suburb or the classic suburb, right, that represents this manifestation of post-war culture. So one is the focus on family and the sort of nuclear family rather than the extended family, that you were living in a single family home disconnected from, you know, cousins, uncles, aunts, et cetera, the kind of urban network that you might otherwise be a part of if you stayed in, you know, Brooklyn or, or Manhattan, right? Um, and this idea that it is about self-determination, self-control, and consumerism. So you move to a suburb, um, and Kevin Cruz makes this argument in his book, White Flight, that the term white flight is sort of a misnomer, that it's flight from and flight to. So you're moving towards upper mobility, home ownership, self-determination, right? As you pointed out, good schools, safe streets, low taxes, these kinds of things, right? And it's oriented around consumerism in the midst of the Cold War so that it's a venue or a, or a stage for buying things and, and demonstrating your ability to buy things. The first, and we're gonna, we are going to talk about that. I've got some questions about how yeah. consumerism is all tied into the idea of suburbia. Um, but the first concept uh, that your book explores is NIMBY, not in my backyard, as it relates to nuclear power. Uh, you say it's an expression of power by endorsing the need for a specific civic project like a nuclear power plant but not wanting your own resources or space or your risk to be spent on it. Yes. And it's really this idea, I think, you know, in that quote or in that, in the, in what you just read is the notion that suburbanites find themselves in this kind of politically powerful position to be able to say, yes, we need a thing. It's important to 
society, the nation in all these ways. But we also can stay outside of politics by saying it endangers our family rather than I am against, in this case, nuclear power, that I have an ideological opposition to nuclear power. You know, uh, you may be familiar with the no nukes movement of the late 70s and early 80s, right, which is about both nuclear weapons and nuclear power, where suburban homeowners are saying, I don't really care, right? Um, there's this uh, op-ed letter from this guy, Francis Brady, in the New York Times about the Shoreham nuclear power plant on the North Shore of Long Island that says, I really don't care, right? He basically says, he literally says, argue about it somewhere else. Partisans go leave, ideologues leave. What I care about is that it's not here, right? So, and, and when they're victorious, they go back, right? They don't join up. They don't join this larger global movement against nuclear power. They go home and are victorious. And they say, um, we understand why nuclear power might be needed, but we just don't want it here. Was there a place where this happened and kind of um, all came together as one and is exemplifies perfectly the battle we're talking about? Yeah, so that Shoreham example, I think, is the one that I highlight in the book. And I highlight it because I think it best articulates these values in the process, right? So what I'm trying to get at with NIMBY is not simply that it is a um, an expression, but it's a political stance and a process, right? That to say not in my backyard means a bunch of things and it leads to a bunch of things. So um, the Shoreham nuclear power plant is sited and built between basically the late 1960s and into the 1980s on the North Shore of Long Island. Um, but it never actually operates. It never produces a watt of power because of the local resistance to the plant. It's the only plant to have this happen. Um, and it's because these constituents and these consumers say, Sure, we'd like lower bills, but we're more interested in protecting our homes. And if you're a politician who supports Shoreham, we're not going to vote for you. And so you see, I detail in the chapter, a number of politicians who flip their position to gain favor to be elected, right? Local politicians and state politicians, including Mario Cuomo, who say, you know, we're, they were pro-nuclear power, pro the idea of like, um, you know, energy too cheap to meter. But when these constituents said, well, we won't vote for you, they switched. And if they didn't switch, they were voted out of office. Why did and how did suburbanites accumulate this political power? So this is the, the larger story of post-war suburbia that a, a number of scholars, particularly the new suburban history, have outlined, right? So in essence, it is the movement of the population, right? So moving out of cities and, and lessening their population powers we see with gerrymandering and other things. Um, and that's centering it on these constituents who vote and who are um, reliable blocks of voters around certain issues. So, you know, the movement West, the movement out, you know, into California as California becomes a political powerhouse um, in the 1960s and 70s. And you can see their politics are mixed, right? That it's not necessarily strictly liberal or strictly conservative, um, although, it, you know, it, it gives rise to the new right. Um, but it is mostly a movement of populations and of voters who are, um, you know, I guess it maybe our, our, our parlance are a demographic that are, you can target more easily. Describe what you just used the term, describe what the new right is and how they pushed for power to move from the national government to the local government and then to the homeowner and what impact that had on the suburbs. Yes. So the emergence of the new conservatism or the new right um, is, is a long, <laughs> a relatively long uh, um, political I guess I was going to say battle, but that's not really exactly right. But it's the emergence of these political interests around uh, a number of particular things that coalesce into national political visibility with uh, the nomination of Barry Goldwater for president in 1964 and the eventual election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, but it is sort of in the midst of the Cold War is anti-communist. Um, 
It is anti-big government. It is anti-civil rights. Um, it is pro-religious values and religion in American life. Um, it's pro-teaching of American history that is uh, a triumphant narrative of uh, domination and success of the continent, right? And so you see by the 70s emergence of groups that are anti-tax, anti-government, um, combining with the kind of cultural conservatism of a Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, to create this powerful coalition um, that is, is really uh, taken advantage of by Ronald Reagan, and he's a product of, but he also is able to um, really motivate those people to vote. Another topic your book explores extensively is the idea of suburbia as an acknowledgement of defeat. And I didn't even think about it but when it, until I read your book, but when it comes to home alarms, to neighborhood watch, to surveillance cameras, it's a way for suburbanites to say sort of subconsciously, this is just the way things are. We aren't really in control. We need all of these things to protect this lifestyle. And I guess you might say, oh, well, that makes sense. Who wouldn't want an alarm on their home? But what you're really saying is you need that to feel, A, mentally safe and B, physically safe. Yeah, and I think that is the, 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 the essence of, of what I'm trying to get at in the book is how do people who are powerful and privileged, who are at some level the most privileged, right? They are white, they're middle class, they're largely educated, um, they're upwardly mobile, they're courted as consumers and constituents, right? things are turned towards them in American culture already. And yet, right, they feel this kind of um, persistent and often very real anxiety, right? And so this is, the story I'm trying to tell in the book is in part about real material threats, that there are actual dangerous things that happen, right? The, the poisoning of children at Love Canal is real. Um, the near meltdown at Three Mile Island is real. The kidnapping of Adam Walsh and his murder is real. Um, the epidemic of teen suicides in suburbs in the 1980s and 90s is real. The Columbine shooting is real but they are sort of symbolic of epidemics that don't exist, but that lead to all of these behaviors and all these anxieties that create, right, what I call the carceral suburb, these people who are both protecting themselves, taking control through all these measures, but also are every day aware of their um, endangerment. How did the new right then cultivate that fear that people living in suburbia had? So it, it is this sort of kind of classic dialectical relationship, right, that there is the emergence of law and order politics, the wars on crime and drugs in the late 1960s, which basically says, you know, we must be extremely punitive to fight these wars, right? That coddling, quote unquote, coddling or, or rehabilitation, et cetera, through the criminal justice system doesn't work. What we need are harsh sentences, law and order, um, sort of repressive regimes, particularly in urban areas. And so at the same time, when you, then you have people aware of home invasions in the suburbs, they are part of that story. They are now producing this idea that the streets are endangered, even when they may not be, right? Um, and so the new rights sort of push, um, and it becomes actually a mainstream position. Uh, uh, Paul Renfro's new book, Stranger Danger, about the connections between sort of childhood uh, kidnapping epidemic and the carceral state gets at this idea really well, which is by producing this idea of endangered streets, it becomes this bipartisan issue that everybody wants to be tough on crime, right? Bill Clinton signs the 1994 um, crime bill. Joe Biden is a, is a primary author, right? That this becomes a central position that we need more cops, streets are endangered, and the only way to fix it is this sort of repressive or authoritarian version of law and order. Um, but that comes out of the sort of, you know, <laughs> 1970s politics that, that's in reaction to urban unrest. 
Um, I, my day job is as a TV news reporter. And so I interview, you know, people every day about sometimes about things that happen in their suburban neighborhoods that are not so good. And oftentimes, yep. and I hear this in the city too, uh, I didn't think it could ever happen here. I hear that all the time. I, I, I never thought that could happen. Um, you talk about the impact of the media in cultivating this sense of ongoing imperilment. And it's interesting because on the one hand, the media is um, paints suburban neighborhoods as being safe. And on the other hand, the media is also responsible for fostering this idea that you're not safe in some ways. Um, so I guess maybe the story that we can kind of put that all together in is the kidnapping of Adam that you just mentioned and how this starts to foster the idea that even the most pristine neighborhoods aren't safe. But talk about the impact of the media on all this. So there's probably a version of this book that a media studies scholar would write that would be about um, that specific question, right? That the whole book would be through the prism of how does this sort of driven by the, the capitalist marketplace of the media, right? The emergence of uh, the national media and, the, you know, the kind of media we deal with today. Um, in my book, it's really about the reproduction of the threats, right? So that as these things get reported on, right? Real things, right? Again, the materiality, the reality of these things that justify a response then get reproduced in any number of ways and often exaggerated. Um, and I think they get exaggerated for the reasons maybe are, I'm implying in my previous statement, which is it sells newspapers, it gets eyeballs on TV movies, it gets eyeballs on television news, um, but it also because of the particular fears they're reproducing, right? So it, again, in the midst of this cultural shift about what's happening in suburbs, how people feel, there's real anxiety about the family and the family unit, right? So coming out of the 1970s, the emergence of no-fault divorce, um, as I talk about in, in the book, the, uh, the suburban hardcore punk documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization, right? And it's sort of tongue-in-cheek in a way, but it's also taken as very real by culture critics, right? The emergence of the cultural conservative movement is about the liberal culture that has destroyed the American family. So when Adam's story gets made into a television movie, it sort of ripples through the culture as we can't let this happen here. And this is a pervasive threat that we must be ready for, whether it's actually there or not. And so the media is there to reproduce and at some level exaggerate these threats, whether or not they exist. And often they're working from, you know, flawed statistics, flawed stories. You know, I'm sure you've probably reported a story that you had thought was lock solid and ends up being not, right? Um, Newsweek reports something like, you know, 50,000 stranger abductions a year in 1984, right? Just an absurdly high number, right? That, it, that almost couldn't be happening because you would have to know about it. And it turns out it's more like 70, right? And that kind of exaggeration is what leads to this, you know, what I would consider an overreaction, right? This, this uh, as you put it, this desire to assert control in a world where you, fear, where, you, where you feel constant anxiety. While I was reading your book, I happened to have been, I happened to watch Home Alone. And to <laughs> me, that movie is the perfect outgrowth of what we're talking about here. Because you've got a kid who, okay, he gets left home alone. You have to suspend disbelief for that. But it really seemed to grow out of all these feelings that there are these guys, you know, with their sights set on these giant homes in these beautiful suburbs where seemingly nothing can go wrong. And it was like that movie is almost like your book in two hour movie. <laughs> I mean, I can't disagree with that. And I have to say there are lots of things that aren't in the book that are that pain me greatly like that, that if I, you know, more pages, more time where you could really. It's so hard. You have to choose these representative examples of these stories, right? But, but you're totally right. 
that this movie gets at and it's comedic but it's i think again the kernel of truth that is there that there's an ongoing fear about children home invasion and kidnapping and that at some level it's been experienced as real or the anxiety is constant because of home alarm systems private security gated communities right so the culture is ripe to have this fear and to want to maybe laugh at it right release the tension of this fear because obviously in the movie you know kevin fights back against the burglars right he is more canny than they are they are stupid right versus the what would probably be the reality which is you know a burglar doesn't want to encounter someone and a kidnapper wants to kidnap your kid and do horrible things right like but in making it light you can kind of release the anxiety or fear about that idea right uh, yeah and at one point buzz even says because we live on the most boring street where nothing could ever happen <laughs> yeah it, it, this is always the sort of tension of suburbs, right? And this is why I talk about it um, as a constructed category. Right? A, 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 it's not just space, but it's it's a it's a it's a category of meaning. My friend Cameron Logan says it's a psychological terrain at some level. So you think about it and imagine it and understand it in all these ways that has implications for how the space actually works, what people do, and how they how they behave in it. But what this all gets at here is there's this strategy of locking yourself in. And it allows you to feel secure without having to worry about, as you put it, the structural causes of the need for the fear in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. And then to also ignore the actual crimes that are being committed in suburbia, drugs, domestic abuse, tax fraud. Um, <laughs> it's not a crime, but suicide. I mean, all yeah. these things are going on. So just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and so I think this is where it connects back to your question earlier about the sort of emergence of the new conservatism or the new right and the mainstreaming of these values around how do we deal with emergent problems, right? So, you know, in national defense, it is a buildup of arms to defeat the Soviet Union. But domestically, it is devolution of power that we're going to empower families and parents to make the right choices because they know best for their family. We're going to empower, um, we're going to put cops on the street but we're also going to allow homeowners to exert this power over their domestic space, over their yards, right? So I talk about neighborhood watch and the, the emergence of the suburban vigilante, uh, most notoriously with, with George Zimmerman and his murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, but the stand your ground law in Florida, which you're aware of it down there, comes out of this, that culture, right? Um, but what it does is it turns away, right? It turns the culture, uh, the political conversation away from actual addressing of these causes right that what causes the rise in crime what causes teen suicide um why are we worried about the family right like all of these things that could be addressed in some more structural way um are not uh, and, in, and in fact further demonizes the people so it so it basically says white suburbanites white teenagers are victims and when things happen there is some cultural cause we can point to that is not their responsibility but that they can address Whereas, right, urban crime is quite clearly a part of urban culture that's been demonized um, and stigmatized, you know, <laughs> forever. But, you know, particularly since the unrest of the 1960s that, you know, the crisis of the black family and the, and the sort of blaming of urban crime and urban unrest on the residents themselves rather than their structural conditions, right? The great symbol of suburbia, um, perhaps other than the house itself, um, or the tree-lined street is the shopping mall. And um, I want to ask, you know, and it was fascinating to read about this in the book, but um, what starts to happen as these shopping malls become a refuge for teenagers? Um, so let's talk about that too. But I also want to ask, what is the relationship between a place to foster middle-class consumerism um, and suburbia itself 
so you're totally right, right? When you think of the American suburb, probably those two things come to mind, right? The single family detached house, right? The, you know, even the, the kind of classic 1950s television image of the white picket fence, um, you know, leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, et cetera, um, and the shopping mall. And the shopping mall emerges as a specifically suburban manifestation of consumerism, right? It comes to replace, and in some cases, destroy the urban downtown. It is car-centric, right? So you have to have a car, to go there um, it is oriented around middle-class consumption and consumerism, right? So things for the home um, and the kind of excess consumption of being a middle-class consumer. And it becomes a central public space of the suburb, right? So places that are centerless now have a center, right? The shopping center becomes the central public space often of many suburbs. So you don't have like what you might consider an urban public space that you would normally have isn't there. So it becomes a place to gather, a place to, have political events, a place to hand out flyers, a place to sell Girl Scout cookies, right, et cetera. It's the place where you know everyone from your town and maybe from your surrounding towns will come. And so, you know, there's some, I believe it's something like 30,000 shopping malls are built between, you know, the early 1970s and, and 2000 and 2001. That's a lot. <laughs> and th that there are so many, and as we see now, the sort of failure of shopping malls at some level uh, shows us there were too many. But these become the central places for suburban culture and community. And it's also a way of expressing for people who go there that they've got the money to kind of go from store to store and they, go, they leave their house and they park their nice car in the parking lot at the mall. And then they can go from store to store and pick out the things they like and just buy them. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it, you know, it's kind of a, I imply this in the book, but it's kind of civic culture, but it's actually consumer culture, right? So it's civic culture covered by consumer culture that to go there, legally speaking, and I think to some degree um, in the minds of uh, police or mall owners, you have to be shopping, right? There's no loitering. There's no skateboarding. There's no right. gangs. Kids, right. you know, like there are all of these rules that basically say like the point of this space is to buy things and to spend money, even though it is maybe your only central space to hang out if you're a teenager or the place to gather, right? Uh, and so you're totally right. Like it is, it is, it, it, it is exceptionally oriented around spending money and profit. Uh, and, and why is that? Why did that become attractive for suburbanites? So it does space. a bunch of things. Yeah. I mean, in the pre-internet shopping era, uh, it provides all the things they need to decorate and outfit their homes to sort of distinguish themselves by their style. Um, and, to, and to some degree, you know, the, the keeping with the Joneses ethic, right? That uh, this is where you go to get the fashions. This is where you go to be cool. This is where you go to some level to be seen <laughs> um, in the shopping mall. Um, but it's also a place that is thought of as safe, controlled, right? Quite literally, it has a security force. It's climate controlled. It provides a refuge from what is now becoming a dangerous public space, right? They're thinking about, okay, the streets are dangerous. Perhaps my home is dangerous, right? Malls failed, though, in some ways. One is that in some places, the prices just became too high and it became too easy to find a bargain somewhere else. Um, another reason you argue is because um, maybe there were too many of them and it just, they, they, you know, the, 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 the lure got diluted. Um, but the other thing is they become failed spaces as far as a refuge for teenagers. It sounds great. Oh, I'll leave the kids at the mall for a while. Um, I can go do what I have to do and the kids will be there and there's someone guarding them and there's a camera on them. There's a, a surveillance camera and there are other people around. So what bad things could, could actually happen? How did they fail though in that goal for the suburban parent? 
and these are all at some level a partial failure, right? So not all malls are destroyed, not all malls are overregulated, but so many are. Um, and so this idea again emerges that, okay, we've moved here, we're feeling unsafe, but I know that I can drop off my daughter and her friends to go see a movie, go get a slice of pizza. Um, as one mom puts it um, in suburban Syracuse, right? I don't love it when all these teens hang out, but I know she won't get raped, right? And that encapsulates again the logic here of like, well, this is at least a safe space in this kind of fundamental way even if what they're doing is misbehaving, loitering, even shoplifting, right? But as the notion of the mall gets um, tagged or, or, or stigmatized as a teen space, this drives away consumers, right? This disrupts the consumer ethic of the mall. This means that security is now focused on chasing groups of kids out. Stores are focused on preventing shoplifting. Other consumers don't want to be in places where teenagers are. Um, and so it, it, it creates a much more strictly regulated environment that, um, I, I argue in the book, and I think it is borne out, is a shopping experience many people do not want, right? That they don't want to be surveilled in quite in this way. They don't want to think about this space in this way. What does this say, though, about America's willingness to invest in young people? And then the second question is, why did teenagers need the mall in suburbia? So as I alluded to earlier, this idea of the crisis of the family that emerges in the 1970s and becomes a part of um, family values politics of the 80s and 90s uh, is about teens. It's about proper citizenship, about raising moral um, uh, citizens, right? That the whole point of the family, the whole point of the education system, the whole point of any kind of religious or moral belief, right, is to raise proper people. And if this is what's happening in malls, then we're failing, right? That ultimately what's happening here is we, these, these are people who are redeemable, but we have to redeem them. We have to enact some regime to bring them back into the fold, right? So bringing them home, um, keeping them in safer spaces so they don't get hurt in any physical way, but also keeping them from consuming media and other kinds of things that might be dangerous to them, or at least ideally. And I often draw the parallel that what you see in urban communities of the same period, 1980s and 90s, and the crackdown, um, you know, sort of broken windows theory policing is people are arrested, people are incarcerated for small crimes, right? That they are jailed or they pay fines and it's constant. Whereas teens in the mall are loitering, breaking windows, shoplifting, and they get off with a slap on the wrist, right? And so you see this difference in who is valued as a potential consumer, as a potential citizen, um, and how they are treated differently by a system that is still governed by this kind of law and order culture. Why do the teenagers need the malls? They have nowhere else to go. <laughs> um, they, they're stuck in a, in, you know, a, a landscape that isn't really catered to them, even though it's designed for families. So the kinds of spaces that did exist, so I talk a bit about the recreation center um, and the 1970s recreation center, the, the centers that get built in these suburban places end up being, you know, magnets for teens and magnets for kids who misbehave, right? And so they, they get shut down, they get repurposed into community centers, into um, senior centers. Most of them are not oriented towards teens or teen culture. And if they are, no teenager wants to go there, right? This is where you go, this is where your mom takes you, where you don't want to be, and now you're taking a class that you don't want to take on a Saturday versus the mall, where you're allowed to hang out, where, you're, where you have sort of free reign, at least in the earlier period of the 70s and 80s. In a chapter called Parental Advisory Explicit Content, um, you analyze the Columbine shootings as suburbia really run amok, where all the bad things about suburbia express themselves in this one horrific incidence. Um, we've heard the theories about the killer's motive being embedded in the media, 
in video games they were playing, even in bowling, in the clothing they wore, in their lack of imagination, in mm-hmm. anger over girls and women. Um, what if it's suburbia itself that they were angry at? I mean, this is, you know, if we are to take them at their word um, and, and their journals and the, their, um, their writings are all online, actually, the FBI has made all of this public. So if you, if, you, if you read through them, which I did, you see that they are frustrated with the culture around them, um, but not necessarily in the way that you were saying. So it is as much about the failure of the family itself, right? That a frustration with not being taken seriously, with not being understood, kind of, I would say, quintessential teenage concerns. Um, but there's also lurking, and I think uh, if you haven't read it, you should read it, Dave Cullen's book, Columbine. Um, yeah, fantastic I, I, book, yeah. And it is the authoritative yeah. study of both the media coverage and the pathologiz- pathologization of culture around Columbine that actually masked what was really happening with these guys, um, which was to some degree undiagnosed, and in some cases diagnosed um, depressive disorders, anxiety, um, and then exacerbated by their home environments, right? that they weren't able to get the care they needed for a variety of reasons. But the way it's covered and what I talk about in the book is it becomes this kind of quintessential example of blaming culture, blaming these cultural causes, seeing cause and effect between consuming media and behaving poorly or violently rather than right these structural things that are missed time and again. They're arrested. Um, they are sent to the, the principal's office, right? All these things, these, these moments of intervention that could have led to a different outcome. Let's talk about um, the change that we see during the period your book covers from 1975 to 2001. And so Columbine is involved in that, the rise and then the beginning of the fall, the the rise and then the beginning of the fall of shopping malls. It's a tough sentence to say. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the change of um, how crime is perceived in the suburbs. So how do the suburbs themselves change over the 25 years, 26 years that this book covers? So one is the emergence of an era of fear, that there is real fear that is legitimated in the media that you see and can point to an actual incident of these local things happening that you can legitimately be afraid of and act against. But two is the, and the idea that what I call productive victimization, that the way in which suburbanites react to this across this era, and I think even through to today, is not simply as defense, right? Not just trying to protect against threats, but actually doing all these things that give them more power, more cultural authority, further cementing the white suburban family as the sort of the family of America. And so I think that's the thing that I think about as being maybe the the key takeaway is that out of fear, out of legitimate um, endangerment comes more power, right? For people who are already privilege for people who already have power in a variety of ways, both sort of material and I guess sort of political or cultural power. What impact then are the suburbs having on the social movements of today? Black Lives Matter, voter registration efforts, gun control? I think the primary one or the one I talk about a lot when I talk about the book is the emergence of stand your ground in the suburban vigilante and the idea that property rights are portable. So the stand your ground law basically says, you know, the castle doctrine would say if someone invades your home and you cannot retreat, you're within your right to kill them, right? To defend yourself. What stand your ground says is wherever you think you have a right to be, you can defend yourself. 
right? And this is a very loosely defined thing, right? That a jury or a court that has to figure out, well, did you have the right to be there? Were you legitimately endangered? And then was the act that you committed justified? And so we've seen over and over and over again, and, and I think now 23 states have passed a version of stand your ground, which is modeled on the Florida law, that for the most part, it is white people who are homeowners <laughs> um, who are exercising their quote-unquote right to dispense justice right outside of the criminal justice system and feel as though they should that this is a way to curtail the crime wave right in quotes um, that doesn't actually exist another thing your book argues right towards the end is that um the roots of 1990s suburbia um lay the groundwork for anti-vaxxers, anti-global warming, expressions of privilege. Um, just explain that a little bit and why you think that the 1990s are where these movements got their intellectual juice from. <laughs> yeah, and to, and to be fair, that, you know, sort of anti-vax <laughs> culture, um, both globally and, America, and in America has a long, very long history, right? So, you know, going back to the first vaccines, they were anti-vaxxers. Um, but what I'm getting at is the consumer ethic of wellness um, that the historian Natalia Petrozella is studying um, and many other people are studying um, specifically, right? Um, so I talk about in chapter two, this idea of what happens when people begin experiencing environmental illness and multiple chemical sensitivity. Uh, and these are disorders that are not diagnosable, but are experienced as real pain by sufferers, mostly women, mostly middle class, mostly suburban. And they come to treat themselves, right? That, you know, shunned at some level by the medical establishment um, or treated as mental disorders rather than physical disorders. They find all of these ways to treat themselves through consumer culture, buying these things, seeing this kind of healer or sort of, you know, <laughs> I, I would call non-scientific um, uh, healers that is part of this broader culture of, I understand science and I have to make a decision for me, right? That this devolution of power to the family and to the individual means that I can make a rational reason choice about my engagement with science and medicine, right? The, the, the realities of those things. Something fascinating is happening though in suburbia. Um, we've been talking a lot about sort of the rightward bend that the suburbs have had, um, but today, the suburbs are representing a leftward trend in our elections. So what's happening here? So this is, this is something that was, that was difficult to parse, right? That simultaneously in their voting patterns and often in their responses to surveys throughout this period, uh, Lily Geismer's book, Don't Blame Us, is about this idea of suburban liberals and how they react to the changes happening around them in Reagan's America. I um, mean, through this period, even into 1990s. Um, so, we're sort of talking about two things that are not the same, but are related, right? So sort of politics, politics, electoral politics, voting, support for candidates and issues, and then cultural politics, the things that people do in and around their lives. And so they tend to be facilitated by this kind of new right philosophy of the devolution of power to the individual and the homeowner that allows them to do all these things they want to do. While they can still profess, let's say, um, support for civil rights and integration, at the local level, they're still resisting um, affordable housing, right? That, or if you live in a, a diverse community, you often don't live in an integrated community. So I live in Montclair, New Jersey, relatively diverse town, um, suburban town, but it is not well integrated at all. Um, and so it allows people to point to these, the support of this broader liberal 
political cause, be it environmentalism, integration in race and civil rights and equality, um, that is not actually borne out by their individual actions or even collective actions at the local level. So they're able to sort of, I, I argue they are, they, they try to be ideologically agnostic, right? They don't want to get tarred and feathered with any particular view, but they want to maintain this local control and they can do so by responding to threats, by saying, well, if we build that housing here, we're really worried about the character of the neighborhood, right? <laughs> you know, these coded racial words are about crime um, or the environmental things that are kept out that often get displaced to communities that are less politically powerful, things like that. But, but um, these, are, these are suburbs that drove both the 2018 takeover of the House and also um, President-elect Biden's victory. It's yes. just a fascinating thing to see. I, and, and so I would make the argument um, that they're not afraid of politicians. Politicians are afraid of them. So, so if you vote for your local House candidate who is, you know, an avowed liberal, um, who, who is out front, you know, uh, and again, maybe not likely in a suburban place, but possible um, on all of these issues, the Green New Deal and, and, and racial equality and reparations and all of these things, um, they're really not afraid of the federal government coming for them, right? They've withstood... 50, 60, 70 years of changeover in party, which has not fundamentally changed suburban power. And so they don't really fear a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think most suburbanites are really concerned with their property rights, their local schools, et cetera, um, under a new administration. So then voting for Joe Biden and their local liberal House member is an expression of I think they understand good governance, <laughs> you know, that they are not also uneducated or stupid people. And I think, you know, it's hard to know what people's sincere beliefs are, but I think they do have some commitment to ideas of equality, ideas of inclusion, ideas of integration, and even ideas of competence, right? In this particular election that, you know, they do care that if they want the vaccine, it can actually be created and rolled out in an effective way. They do does, want their kids to go back to school, you know. Does anything need to be done about Suburbia, does, I mean, is there a call to action in this book or is it just an explanation that you're trying to give? So, you know, I tell my students all the time when they're doing research that, you know, whatever they're doing is about them and now, right? The questions you're asking, the sources you look at, the things you want to understand are in some way driven by who you are, where you are, what you are, right? Where you're situated. And so I don't know that there's a call to action per se in the book itself, but I do think it lays out many of the ways in which power has been embedded in suburban communities in ways that is hard to untangle through traditional political means. Uh, and I don't, and I'm not nearly the first person to say that, right? That activists in the environmental justice movement, activists in affordable housing, right? For years and years and years, mostly people of color, mostly urban have been advocating for all kinds of solutions, right? Um, what it, one of the most difficult things is that you can change policies, but when it comes to ownership of property and where you live, it is very difficult to change where people live, right? And the choices they make in the quote unquote free housing market. So a lot of those things stem from, um, if you've looked at the mapping inequality project, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, this is great um, digital humanities project that basically maps, you know, the legacy of redlining into communities, right? That says, where do people live? Tell me your zip code. I can tell you what your median income will likely be in 20 years. I can tell you whether you're college educated. I can tell you your health outcomes and you're likely how long you will live. Um, and it can be different quite literally across the street because of who lives there and, and those resources they get. Is the future of America in the city, the suburb, the exurb, or in rural communities? 
as a historian, I hate to make predictions because we know that we're almost always wrong. That <laughs> it's almost impossible to predict what thing will motivate the change that will happen, right? So, you know, the pandemic being one of the many smart people were predicting a pandemic and we should be prepared. Um, but I think most historians would not have said, well, I'm going to hinge my analysis on the coming pandemic. I do think climate change is probably the one thing we can count on that will shape where people live and how they live. I, I, I'm not well-versed enough to know what that means other than people will probably move away from large bodies of water um, on the coast and have to move inland. And that might mean a different kind of housing policy and a relocation of people who have to figure out how do I, how do I tune myself to this place is not urban, is not dense, or how do we turn those places into maybe quasi-urban places, right? That this, the rural land, it does exist. It, it, does it get built up by people fleeing climate change? Last question. Where did you come up with accused wizard as your Twitter <laughs> handle? I, uh, yeah, I, I've debated just changing it to my name. Um, so I believe it was 2008 or nine. Ancient <laughs> so, history already. I know before I was finished grad school even and ever thought I'd really have any kind of career or anyone would care or Twitter would even still be here. Uh -huh. um, I, I think on some, if I recall correctly, it's been a while. I had to put down, I was filling out a form and it asked for religion and I just wrote down accused wizard because <laughs> I thought okay. it was a funny way to think about religious belief. And then I was like, you know what? That should be my Twitter handle. Okay, there we go. I, I didn't, I, I had, I thought maybe, I don't know what it was. Interesting. It's, like a, it's a funny idea to me that like, you're not a wizard, but you're accused of being a wizard and this is your like belief system or whatever. There you go. Love it. Dr. Reese Mandel, the author of Neighborhood of Fear, The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Certainly check out that book and his website, Kyle Reese Mandel. At, at, let me get that right. His website is kylereesemandel.squarespace.com. He's on Twitter at Accused Wizard. <laughs> I, do, I, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.